Actions that split our unity are an abandonment of our people, of our comrades in arms who are now fighting in the front. This is a stab in the back of our country and our people. Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today we're going to talk, of course, about Wagner's rebellion in Russia, which we just heard Russian President Vladimir Putin describe as a stab in the back. Why did the Russian private security company and its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, decide to march on Moscow? What persuaded them to stop? And what does the short-lived insurrection mean for Ukraine? But we're going to do something else too. We're also going to look at Mali, one of the countries outside Ukraine where Wagner operates. The Malian government has just told the United Nations to pull its peacekeepers out of Mali. That's partly due to Wagner. In particular, the Malian government is angry at a UN report about an attack perpetrated by Malian security forces together, it seems, with Wagner on a village in central Mali, an attack that killed many civilians. So we'll do the episode in two parts. The first section will look at what the Wagner revolt means for Russia and Ukraine, and a second will look at its potential implications for places in Africa where Wagner operates, especially Mali, as the Security Council considers pulling out UN peacekeepers. So, first of all, I am delighted to welcome back onto the podcast Oli Olika, who listeners will know all too well is Crisis Groups Europe Central Asia Director. Oli, welcome back on. Always happy to be on. So, this bit we're recording on Monday morning in Europe. Oli, why don't we start then with the basics? What happened and, more importantly, why? Okay, so my hypothesis is that Prigozhin saw Wagner getting pushed out, right? That he had been pushing for more recognition for himself and for his forces. And what he was getting instead was the Russian government pushing to incorporate Wagner and Wagner's people into the MOD structure. He did not want that. He felt, as he has made clear over the course of many months, that Shoigu and Gerasimov are doing a terrible job prosecuting this war. So on Friday, he recorded this message that went a lot further than he'd gone before, but saying that basically the war had been started and was being waged under um, a false pretext, that it was uh, serving corrupt interests, that it was Shoigu and Gerasimov trying to cover themselves in glory and various unnamed oligarchs trying to make money. He did not blame Putin. To the contrary, he said that he felt the president was being misled and forced into bad decisions. Um, the response to that, according to Prigozhin, was that his forces were attacked by Russia. It's not 100% clear to me whether that happened or not. But then the next step was that he took control of Rostov-on-Don, which is where the Russian military had been staging a lot of its military operations. It's a, the big hub. It's right uh, across the border from Ukraine. So that's what we woke up to in Europe on Saturday morning. Um, and I think at that point, and then having taken Rostov-on-Don, uh, they moved, uh, started moving north uh, to Voronezh. In essence, Olya, tell me if this is right. The whole thing initially seemed more sort of an appeal to Putin. Prigozhin was angry, as you say, about this order that Wagner forces would be incorporated into the army command in Ukraine, I think by the first of July. And he was appealing to Putin to reverse that decision or even replace the army command, particularly, as you say, Defense Minister Sergei Choigu and the Chief of General Staff, uh, Vitaly Gerasimov. So it was more 
initially at least, an appeal to Putin rather than an attack on the Russian president himself. But then Putin makes this unambiguous speech, part of which we heard up top, declaring Wagner's seizure of Rostov as traitorous and, in essence, an insurrection. Right, so up until the point that Putin of Putin's speech on Saturday morning, I think a lot of people weren't actually even sure which side they were supposed to be on, right? Prigozhin's Putin's man, is this planned? Is this, uh, you know, what are we supposed to do? But Putin's speech makes it clear that this is an insurrection and these people are traitors. And Prigozhin's own response to that is, well, fine, then we're going to need a new president, aren't we? Uh, the president's made a mistake. We're going to need a new president. So Prigozhin actually said we're going to need a new, after Putin's speech, said he wanted to replace Putin. We will eventually have a new president, yeah. So, and then you get this move on Moscow of some portion of the Wagner forces, and they start driving the 180 kilometers north. And, you know, what's interesting is it's not that there's no opposition to this, right? You have firefights. In fact, Wagner shoots several Russian aircraft uh, out of the sky. The count I've heard is three helicopters, one fixed wing aircraft. So it's not that there's nothing, but there's really very little. And in the cities and in places where they're going into, as they, you know, as they pass through Russian National Guard facilities, units, they're not met with opposition. They're and that's crucial, right? Because most of the army is, of course, fighting in Ukraine, and it's not the army that would put down something domestic anyway. It is the National Guard, and the National Guard didn't do anything. Right. This is what the National Guard was created for, right? I mean, I remember when the National Guard was created, and we were all speculating, is this supposed to go into other countries and put down cover, color revolutions? What is this for? But it really is to put down the protests that the Russian government was worried about. Russians who want a new, more liberal order marching into the streets. And the Rosgvardia is great at that, right? Very good at knocking heads and then putting everybody into a vehicle and driving them off to jail. But it's the right that the insurrection came from, right? These ultra-right, pro-war, heavily armed, glorification of militarism, traditional values, quote-unquote, people who um, decide that they're unhappy. And when look, when liberals decide they're unhappy, they go stand in the central square with a sign that says no to war. When these people decide they're unhappy, they march on Moscow. Obviously, it's impossible to know what would have happened had Wagner actually got to Moscow. But again, there wasn't a lot of resistance with the National Guard. In fact, and Russians in Rostov-on-Don and in Varonish, which Wagner also entered sort of further up towards Moscow, you know, they welcomed Wagner in some ways in the way that Putin hoped the Ukrainians would welcome the Russians back in the beginning of last year. I mean, they definitely like that. You did have a few pensioners asking them what they were doing. Why were they tearing up our city? But you also had people buying them cups of coffee. I don't know that I saw that specifically, but you know, you did, people were reasonably friendly. And you had these, this video of these guys, like in grocery stores and whatever and Rostov, you know, shopping with regular shoppers around them. Nobody was doing anything about it. And then, of course, when they left on Saturday night, um, there were cheering crowds. People were shaking Prigozhin's hand as he drove away. But yeah, I mean, I think in general, this was about the reception that Russian military planners had thought they were going to get in Ukraine in February of 2022. So some people have argued that because Prigozhin didn't just criticize the way the war was being fought, which is, as you said, is what he has traditionally done, but criticized the whole sort of 
thing as a corrupt enterprise, as you said, and because people in Rostov in particular welcomed Wagner fighters, you know, that somehow is a reflection of popular anger in Russia at the war, at the whole war. I mean, do you think that's plausible that people identified what Wagner was doing, what Prigozhin was doing as opposition to the war? I mean, as you said, that's a sort of new critique for Prigozhin to have made. To read it as people are opposed to the war uh, would require them to have carefully listened to Prigozhin's statement on Friday evening. I think that's unlikely of the mass of citizens of Rostov. I think what um, the average Rostovian knew was that this is Prigozhin, he runs Wagner, it's kind of macho, and it is against the system. Because he's known for his criticism of the at least the defense minister and the top top brass, right? I mean, right. But he's not known for his criticism of the war as such. So unless you actually were listening to him on Friday, and I was speaking to a Ukrainian official who said that you know that like reading his words on Friday, it's like wait, did somebody send him our talking points? It's not exactly that, right? Because the Ukrainians don't talk about mysterious oligarchs, uh, but they do certainly say that this is not a just war. But you have to have heard that because that's different from his previous line, which is much more a more war that they're not giving Wagner enough ammunition to fight. Um, you know, and the MOD insists, yes, we are. We're giving you everything we're supposed to give you. You know, stop whining. Uh, and that, that's been the fight for months now. And Olya, we don't really know what would have happened had Wagner reached Moscow. Obviously difficult to say. Clearly, though, Prigozhin himself decided that it was a better bet to take this deal that, you know, in essence, seems to have entailed him agreeing to decamp to Belarus, demobilize at least part of Wagner. We'll talk about the deal itself in a moment. But why do you think he backtracked? Yeah, I mean, there are a few things here, right? One is, I don't think he had any idea what to do if he got to Moscow, right? He did not start this off as a plan to overthrow the government. He started this off as a plan to appeal to Putin to not dissolve Wagner and to give him a bit more status and to change the MOD leadership, which he's very unhappy with. And he did that by seizing the the army command in Rostov. I spoke to somebody on Saturday who speculated that what uh, Prigozhin was looking for was a senior government post. And I said, yes, this is how I apply for a job. I apply for a job by taking control of a city. I mean, so, okay, we don't know if he is, if he has gone to Belarus. We haven't heard a peep from him since the images of him waving cheerfully to people in Rostov as he drove away. So is he in fact going to go to Belarus? We do not know. What is going to happen to Wagner? Is it going to be taken over by the Russian government? Is it going to be handed over to somebody else? Right? Because formally the deal was that, I mean, tell me if this is right, but formally the deal is that Wagner, the fighters that were involved in the mutiny or the insurrection, they're supposed to sort of uh, go home, demobilize in essence. The ones that didn't can go into the army. But of course, we have no idea what's going to happen to all the Wagner forces in Syria and different parts of Africa. So exactly right. And, you know, this is exactly what Prigozhin wanted to avoid was his people going into the army. And it's probably something his people want to avoid because honestly, Wagner pays them more. In effect, you do your service with Wagner and you go home. You do your service with the MOD and you get reenlisted for another term of service. So it's not as good a deal. You get paid less and you can't go home. So, you know, much less appealing. 
so it's you know also a mystery to me how many of these people are going to want to go into the MOD forces. But in terms of Wagner in Africa, uh, in the Middle East, um, you know, all the places where Wagner actually makes its money, it is a giant mystery what happens there. Nobody, I've seen nothing authoritative, and I haven't even seen that much speculation. We've heard some peeps from Russian MPs about, oh, maybe Wagner shouldn't be dissolved, but it's people testing the waters. They have no clue. And the mutiny also sort of illustrated how much the Russian army is tied down on front lines in Ukraine, in essence. Well, yeah, we knew that. And it's, again, as you said earlier, it's not entirely clear what they would have done at home. They're not set up to fight insurrections. No one in Russia is actually set up to fight insurrections. They're set up to fight abroad, and they're set up to smash heads together at uh, urban protests. And presumably then the Ukrainians, I mean, they didn't press on the battlefield, as you said, because the Russians didn't withdraw troops, but presumably they were watching it with the popcorn out, as, as people have said. I mean, look, I think it was probably, there was a lot of schadenfreude in watching it from uh, Ukraine. This is not an end to the war by any stretch. I don't exclude the possibility that the Kremlin will use Ukraine as a way to show that it's still there, it's still in the fight, it's still forceful, it's still manly. The, the gendered narratives in this war continue to astound me. So I think that's that's very plausible. There, you know, Zidensky was warning, and people have kept talking about something happening at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, uh, ostensibly plans to by the Russians to blow it up. I generally discount that sort of thing, but it's out there in the air. But I think there's a real possibility that certainly the Russians will keep fighting and might do something escalatory. Now, the question is, what does this whole experience do for morale and command and control, right? We have sent the Russian, you know, both the Russian people as a whole and the Russian armed forces have just seen that their government is a bit of a mess and is not capable of responding to a threat uh, rapidly. And then when it does respond, it is by saying it has negotiated a deal. From the Ukrainian perspective, it's a question of whether the command and control breaks down, whether morale gets worse, not that it was great to start with. And also this message that has been sent, which is that when Russia is backed into a corner, it backs down. So other people have argued that, and certainly it's a conclusion you could draw, right, that Putin responds to threats, that's how to get him to back down. But there was stuff that was quite specific about what's just happened. Right? I mean, there's Prigozhin's relationship with Putin, I mean, they go back a long way, plus the fact that it was happening in Russia itself, so the, you know, the nuclear threat's a little bit different, but also we don't actually know yet what will happen to Prigozhin, whether he will actually survive in Belarus, if that's indeed where he ends up. So I think it certainly militates against anyone looking to start peace talks anytime soon with Putin. Not that Ukraine or Western governments are showing any inclination to do that at the moment, but it doesn't seem a little bit early to argue that this means Putin pushed into a corner is going to back down. Yeah, well, I think this is another catch-22, right? If Prigozhin and his people go on to live their natural lifespans then the message is that Russia pushed, gives in. If they do not, then the message is that you can't trust Russia when it makes a deal. Neither of these are messages that you actually want to send if you're the Kremlin. 
in both cases, none of it gives Ukraine any incentives to go and negotiate with the Russians. And internationally, I mean, in, in Beijing, in, in New Delhi, in Pretoria, uh, in Brasilia, this has got to be pretty embarrassing for Putin. Oh, in the countries uh, that neighbor Russia and Russia's uh, collective security treaty organization allies, lots of uh, lots of folks saying this is an internal matter. We'll just wait and see, right? Uh, Lukashenko got pulled in to quote unquote mediate. This is Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarus president who supposedly brokered the deal, but seems more likely that he was brought in as cover, right? Absolutely. I mean, I find it remarkably difficult to believe that it was Lukashenko who saved the day and Prigozhin took his call, as the Belarus government's PR uh, people would like you to believe. It's more likely there was something direct between the Kremlin and Prigozhin, right? Or maybe not with Putin, but one of Putin's guys in Prigozhin. Almost certainly not with Putin, with somebody Prigozhin trusts. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think Lukashenko saved the day. But that Lukashenko was brought in to provide cover for saving the day gives him some leverage, right? And this has been the issue since August 2020, when there were the protests against Lukashenko and the massive crackdown in Belarus uh, after he falsified election results. Ever since then, Putin has had Lukashenko very dependent. Does this give Lukashenko reverse leverage over Putin? Uh, I guess we'll see. I think from Putin's perspective, from the Kremlin's perspective, bringing in Lukashenko, it's bringing in somebody who has stature, at least on paper, but is dependent enough that he won't do anything about it. But um, I don't know, Lukashenko is very good at wrangling advantage. So the whole thing doesn't look good for the Kremlin, for President Putin, of course. Prigozhin clearly comes out of it badly. What about Defense Minister Choigu and General Gerasimov? Difficult for Putin to replace them, I guess, now. I mean, it, that would really yeah. look like he's bowed to Prigozhin's mutiny. Certainly not quickly. But at this point, look, he can't be happy with them anyway. It is not as though this last year and four months of war have been going swimmingly for Russia. But he's chosen not to, despite sort of, you know, endless criticism from Prigozhin and from the right about Choigu. He's chosen not to do anything, right? I mean, in some ways, Choigu has consolidated his authority as the Minister yeah. of Defense. No, and I think this, look, if you hand Wagner over to the MOD in whole or in part, and Choigu stays in place, Choigu wins out of all of this. Uh, this is actually what he was promised, was that they'd get control of Wagner and he would stop having to deal with Prigozhin's complaints and criticisms. Olya, thanks so much for coming on again. Absolutely. Take care. So to talk now about Mali, its relations with the UN, the request that it pulls the UN mission out, I'm very happy to welcome onto the show Jean-Avey Jezekiel, who is Crisis Group Sahel Director, runs all of our work in the Central Sahel, and Richard Gowan, who is our UN Director. Jean-Avey, Richard, welcome back on. Thank you. It's good to be back. Thank you. So I want to come in a bit to how what's happened in Russia might shape calculations in Bamako, what it might mean for Mali, although, you know, again, a lot of uncertainty about that. But before we do that, Jean-Avey, perhaps you could start by telling us a bit about how relations between the Malian government, between the transitional authorities and the UN have, have deteriorated over the last couple of years, really since the coup in May 
2021. It was the second coup in Mali. And the decision by the coup leader who now heads the army, Asimi Goita, to deepen ties with Moscow, including by partnering with Wagner. There's an estimated one, one and a half thousand Wagner fighters in Mali. So how has that shaped Bamako's relations with the UN, leading to this request that the UN pulls out? Yeah. The Malian decision came came up as a surprise, but if you want to understand, uh, you know, Bamako's decision, we need actually to go back to the the military coup uh, in in May 2021, so two years ago. Uh, after this coup, the, the transitional authorities quickly broke with France and and made Russia their their new military partner. And um, this change has uh, has since led to uh, to the gradual collapse. Of, uh, of the regional stabilization mechanism uh, in which Paris had played a, a central role in, in the Sahel region since uh, 2013, actually. This mechanism aimed at stabilizing Mali and the wider region, but it struggled to contain the, the spread of, uh, of jihadist groups. In 2022, the French Balkan force and also the, the European uh, Takuba mission uh, left Mali, uh, partly due to the, the coming of Wagner uh, in December 21. And Mali also uh, withdrew from uh, the G5 Sahel uh, Joint Force. The G5, you know, being a coalition of uh, five countries in the Sahel, uh, w- working towards security and development in the region. Therefore, you know, MINUSMA finds itself as uh, some kind of an isolated piece uh, in a regional stabilization mechanism itself on, on the verge of, of, of collapse. And from what I understand, Bamako was sort of hoping the UN would adopt a sort of more forward-leaning approach to fighting jihadists, particularly in central Mali. The Malians tried to express their, also their willingness to see uh, MINUSMA staying and, and playing a more active uh, uh, support role in favour of, uh, of the Malian uh, uh, army, um, especially supporting military operations against uh, armed groups. But it was not a realistic option, and the Malian, you know, uh, finally understood that they would never uh, have such a force uh, supporting the, the 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 Malian army. Nowhere in the world has a UN force engaged in a fight against jihadist group. So tensions, you know, developed in the last months between uh, the government on the one hand and and the mission on the other. Uh, Bamako decided to uh, restrict uh, the mission uh, freedom of movement and action. Probably this decision reflects, you know, the, the Mayan authority desire to assert their, their sovereignty, but it also reflects uh, the strong mistrust of a mission that is supported and financed by a country that uh, disapprove the Mayan decision to, to, uh, to use a Wagner company in Mali. So MINUSMA leadership was desperately trying to convince that uh, the presence of the mission will prevent the worst you know, in terms of violence against civilians and also prevent the, the, the further isolation of the regime. However, this argument also showed serious limitation, especially after the publication uh, last month uh, of a report by the, uh, the Office of the United Nations um, High Commissioner for Human Rights on the massacres that happened a year ago. Uh, according to the, to the UN investigation, the, the Malian army and their Russian uh, partners organized the mass execution of, of several hundred civilians during military operation in, uh, in the Moura uh, town in the center of the country. This was the Malian army and, the, and, and Wagner, essentially. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and this episode, you know, the, the release 
uh, of of the report a month before you know the the, the renewal of the of the mandate fueled tension until the breaking point. But again, you know, Marian's decision to get rid of the MINUSMA is uh, the culmination of a two-year process. And Richard, how have debates on the Security Council debates in New York around MINUSMA, around Mali, how have they evolved as the transitional authorities have sort of struck off in this direction and got closer to Russia? I think there has been a mounting sense of scepticism about the value of MINUSMA. Uh, amongst members of the Security Council, which dates back quite some time, but has definitely intensified uh, since Mali uh, grew closer to Russia. I mean, for a long time, France really drove decision-making around Mali in the Security Council. Uh, That was something which I think did cause some irritation to other council members, including the US and UK. But since Bamako made this strategic shift towards Moscow, even the French here have seemed increasingly detached from what is going on in Mali, less focused on the mission's activities. And over the last year or two, I think there has been a growing sense that this mission was going to come to an end sooner or later. What we've heard from diplomats in New York over the last week is that most were surprised that uh, Mali suddenly called for Manusma to withdraw, but most had expected this to happen later this year or maybe in 2024. Everyone knew that the mission was on life support and no one was really going to fight to keep it alive. And that French sense of disinterest that you talked about, Richard, what so France pulled out the troops that it had in Mali, as Genevieve mentioned, as part of Operation Barkhane and pulled those out last year. Relations really deteriorated quite badly between Bamako and Paris and France disengaged on Mali while it's under this government. You know, I think you should remember that if you go back 10 years to 2013 and 2014, France... uh, took a bet on the UN being able to stabilise two Francophone African countries, uh, first Mali and then the Central African Republic. And, you know, France invested quite a lot in giving the UN robust mandates and, and resources in Mali and CAR. And, you know, that bet has fundamentally not paid off. In both countries, uh, Wagner has come in, Russia has gained a huge amount of leverage, So I think that from a a Parisian perspective, what we have seen both in Mali, but also in the Central African Republic is is really the unravelling of a strategy uh, to stabilise these two former colonies. And uh, Russia has been the net winner in both cases. Can we talk then about the implications for Mali itself of the pullout? both for the fight against jihadists and for the peace process in the north. Maybe let's start with the sort of fight which is taking place mostly now in central Mali against Islamist militants. So there's a local ISIS branch, but the big group really is the Janim, the Jamiat Nusrat al-Islam wal-Muslimin, which is an al-Qaeda-linked group that, again, we talked a lot about on the podcast before. So MINUSMA, the UN mission, doesn't really fight jihadists directly. As you said, Jean-Ave, though it is supposed to protect civilians, and it has still been the deadliest UN mission, I think, for some time. 
from what I understand, it does sit in towns and cities in central northern Mali, which offers some degree of protection to those areas. Yeah, well, it's quite hard to anticipate, you know, especially as we don't know how gradual will be this withdrawal. But even if gradual, the departure of the MINUSMA is likely to exacerbate an already complicated security situation. The MINUSMA is mainly deployed in urban centers, and even more particularly in urban centers in the north. And these urban areas are certainly not the main target of jihadist groups, but the presence of the mission has helped to reduce the pressure that jihadist groups were able to exert on them. So, for instance, no Malian town has suffered the, the same fate as Jibo in neighboring Burkina Faso, where jihadists have uh, pressured the population with a blockade that has lasted for over a year now. And these are also Islamist militant groups linked to the Jinim. It's the same coalition that's holding much of the Burkina countryside. Indeed, these are, are the same groups. But precisely, the departure of the peacekeepers could uh, prompt the jihadists to review their strategy and, and lay siege to urban centers, like putting much more pressure on Menaka in northeastern Mali, and then even to, to go the, the, the biggest uh, Malian cities in the north. Nonetheless, the, the Malian authorities uh, seem confident in their ability or in the ability of the army supported by the Russians to hold the ground, as they did, by the way, after the departure of the, the French force, Barkhane, you know, back in 2022. And, and Barkhane had much more military power and military importance than, than the MINUSMA. And to what degree does the Malian army or the government rely on sort of MINUSMA's air assets? You know, even beyond air assets, the MINUSMA is putting a lot of, of resources on, on the table to, to the Malian government. And beyond military resources, uh, you know, the, the departure of, of MINUSMA will also deprive the country of, of other assets. For instance, you know, the, the MINUSMA with its planes and helicopters played a key role in maintaining links between uh, Bamako and, and the northern regions. Uh, for instance, the mission really uh, ensured the movement of, uh, of government officials between Bamako and, and the Northern region. It also facilitated many humanitarian actors to, to access the regions in the north. At the same time, you know, the Malian have tried to uh, equip and strengthen their, their air force with the help of, of Russia. Also, there was a creation in 2020 of a private uh, Malian airline serving the interior. But to be sure, with the departure of MINUSMA, traveling between Bamako and the north is going to be extremely complicated for Malians. Beyond the plains, MINUSMA is also providing thousands of jobs and, and finance. There are a lot of economic opportunities that are going to disappear uh, in regions that are al already weakened by, by 10 years of crisis. And, and here again, you know, the relations between Bamako and the people and the communities in the north um, risk becoming even more strained uh, if the Malian authorities do, do not quickly demonstrate their willingness and ability to invest uh, in the north to compensate for the, the departure of the mission. Let's talk a bit about the north and, and the peace process. So separate from the fight against jihadists, you have a peace deal from 2015 between mostly Tuareg rebels, Tuareg, a big community across parts of the Sahel. This deal brokered by a team led by Algeria, involved the UN, known as the International Mediation, but the deal has stalled. It's supposed to involve sort of devolution uh, of power to the north, army reform, building up local administration, 
economic investment, the economic development of the North, basically it, it stalled. Real signs that Bamako, you know, since getting closer to Russia, has become even more sort of increasingly fed up with the deal. What are the potential implications for the sort of northern peace process of a UN pullout? Well, like you say, the, the peace process has stalled. It has been paralyzed for months now. Uh, and MINUSMA, as well as other key mediators like, like Algeria, uh, have been unable to reboost it so far. But the departure of the MINUSMA, you know, is going to further weaken this, uh, this already uh, failing peace process. Um, just after the decision to, to, to request, you know, the, the mission withdrawal, the, the signatory armed groups, uh, have seen in the Malian request, uh, a fatal blow, you know, a coup fatal against, uh, the peace agreement. The peace process, you know, is, is at a standstill, has been at a standstill for months due to disagreement, uh, between the state and the armed groups. There are growing fears that the agreement could be shattered in the coming months. So, Clearly, you know, the, 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 the departure of the MINUSMA is going to have an impact on, on this process. And when you say the peace process potentially being shattered, you're talking really about a government offensive, sort of renewed fighting between rebels. What is it? The CMA, the Coalition des Mouvements de la Zouad, and the Malian army. Yeah, what appears as, a, as an increasingly likely scenario is a reprisal of, of hostilities between the CMA and, and the government. Of course, you know, it's, it's very hard to anticipate, but this is becoming again uh, a likely scenario. You know, the, privately, many Malian officials are, are quick to criticize, you know, uh, an agreement that the international mediation la- largely imposed on them as well as on armed groups back in 2015. Now, the, the MINUSMA was facilitating the, the everyday shuttles between them and the signatory groups. MINUSMA was also providing the, the secretariat for, for the follow-up committee of, of the agreement. So, you know, the departure of the mission clearly weakens, you know, the international mediation. Of course, there are other mediators. You know, Algeria, which is leading the international mediation, remains committed. But so far, it has not played the role of the day-to-day uh, mediation, which remains extremely important, you know, in a situation where all the signatory parties remain uh, armed. And, I mean, if you think of the UN, the MINUSMA forces up in Kidal, for example, I mean, how much of a deterrent were they for exactly what you're describing happening? Yeah, that, that, that's an additional point. You know, that, the, the departure of UN troops... So beyond the mediation, you know, that also the, the departure of UN troops from, from the towns in the north will create a, a standoff, a, a warring standoff between the Mayan army on the one hand and signatory groups. On the other hand, w- w- signatory groups who are no use to managing their own territory without the assistance or even the presence of Bamako. So uh, in this context, uh, a resumption of hostilities uh, with signatory groups, in particular with the coordination des de mouvements de la Zawad, is, is an increasingly likely scenario. And then, I mean, tell me if this is wrong, Jean-Alain, then you could see a more direct link between the fight against jihadists and the breakdown of the peace process, right? I mean, it's not unthinkable then that parts of the CMA, the coordination, form an alliance with Janim and that would open up a completely different type of rebel front in northern Mali. That, that's feasible. That's a likely scenario. But you, you even have to see that, you know, in a, in a bigger framework, there will be a complete reorganization of alliances. Right now, you know, the armed groups on the north who used to fight each other, you know, 
some being pro-government, the other ones being pro-independence. They managed to create some form of an alliance and stopped hostilities. But if you know, there is a resumption of, of, of the fightings, then you can anticipate a complete redrawing of alliances. And Richard, I assume there's not going to be much of a diplomatic effort to try and dissuade the Malian authorities uh, to sort of walk this back. But uh, UN planners that are thinking about now how the mission is going to leave, I mean, how, how much are these risks sort of foremost in their mind? I don't think anyone in New York is under any illusions about the scale of risk involved in the drawdown. Talking to council diplomats over the last week, I found that they are quite frank about the fact that they think Manusma's exit will lead to more violence and perhaps very serious conflict indeed. A few council members have talked about trying to push back against Mali. Uh, I think Ghana, which is one of the current three African council members, is especially concerned. Obviously, Ghana is also sort of increasingly coming under at least under the shadow of jihadist operations. So the Ghanaians have been emphasizing the risks. But we've also heard that maybe some countries you wouldn't expect, such as China, have been talking about the dangers of the UN leaving. Uh, China itself has, I think, around 400 troops in the country as part of MINUSMA. Uh, And there's, you know, there's a broader sense that if Mali can force a mission out, that creates a, a very worrying precedent for the future. Nonetheless, the French, who continue to be the diplomatic lead on Mali and the council, have indicated that they see no alternative to pulling the operation out. Uh, And we're starting to sort of see the framework for the withdrawal. It looks like, in essence, MINUSMA will cease most of its mandated tasks at the start of July, and then the council will give it six months to liquidate. The Malians have said they are willing to work with the UN on the liquidation process. Now, liquidating a mission means a number of things. I mean, firstly, you have to get the troops out. Secondly, you have to get UN equipment um, out of the country. I think there is a lot of concern about what happens to MINUSMA bases. UN officials have worried that Blue Helmets will leave a base and then Wagner will come in and take over the facilities. So uh, I think that there's probably going to be negotiations to try and avoid that sort of that sort of scenario. And then you have questions about what you do regarding some of the other MINUSMA activities that Jean Hervé referred to. I mean, there are a lot of stabilisation projects which uh, don't necessarily have to end when MINUSMA ends. It may even be possible for the UN to find some sort of mechanism to leave some civilian experts in country who could continue to support the faltering peace process with the northern groups that you were talking about. I think that would be probably the UN Secretariat's biggest goal. But it remains to be seen whether Mali will acquiesce to that. So we're talking Monday morning in New York, Monday afternoon in in Europe. And to say there's a degree of uncertainty about Wagner's presence in Africa would be would be a, would be an understatement. The leader of Wagner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, has just seemingly agreed to leave Russia, go to Belarus. He's also agreed, it seems, that 
Wagner operatives or Wagner fighters that were involved in the mutiny in Russia are going to demobilize, they're going to go home, and that those who weren't involved are going to get wrapped into the Russian army. But those are the Wagner in Ukraine. It's completely unclear what is going to happen to Wagner in Africa. Uh, so in Mali, the Central African Republic, Libya, and uh, Syria as well, of course. So a lot of uncertainty about what the future of Wagner as an entity that's sort of linked to, but separate from the Russian state. We, we really just don't know. Jean-Avey, I mean, how do you think the government, the transitional authorities, the um, Goita and, and his circle are, are thinking about what's happening now? Well, I mean, of course, it's very uh, extremely difficult to anticipate what will be the impact. But for sure, you know, the Malian uh, authorities have, have their, their eyes on, on what's going on in, in Russia and Ukraine. Um, some anticipate the weakening of Wagner and believe the Malian government might, might lose the, the support of uh, Wagner, possibly also of Russia. What would be the impact of that if it happens? Possibly, you know, it could also trouble any kind of military strategy to, uh, launch an offensive against the CMA, for instance, if this is what uh, the Mayan authority have in mind. But we have also to say that other commentators uh, anticipate uh, an opposite development. They, they, they believe that Wagner troops in Ukraine will have to withdraw and that a significant part of them could be redeployed in Africa, including in Mali, and that would actually even strengthen the support that they provide to, to the Mayan authority. You know, in my opinion, whatever scenario prevails, they both speak uh, about the dependence of Mayan authorities on external military actors. And this is a strong continuity. Yesterday, Mali was dependent on French operations. Today, it seems that they are dependent on Wagner slash Russia. Yet, on this continuity also, some argue that the Mayan army is today a little bit more autonomous and active than it was uh, when the French were deployed. Um, of course, there is also a price to pay for that. There are much less limitation to military abuses. But still, for the Mayan army, they have gained a, a better position in a way. And if there is any lesson learned on the Mayan side after what happened in Russia, it is that the Mayan security forces need to build their own autonomy. Of course, or still they need allies, but they also need allies who help them building this autonomy. Though it's not just the dependence, right? I mean, in some ways, as you say, you can explain why the transitional authorities, you can explain why they've gone with Russia, with Wagner, for all its brutality, given the failure of a decade of French-led efforts in the Sahel. Yet, partnering with Wagner, even if, as you say, the Malian government maybe has a little bit more leeway and can sort of chart its own course more than maybe it could before, but still going with Wagner in some ways is doubling down on the same military-led strategy that's prevailed since 2012-2013, and this time with a partner that's far less accountable and more brutal. I mean, there had been some signs in Bamako before Goita, Asimi Goita, current leader, took power that the government recognised it might have to open talks with militant leaders, including Janim leader Iyad Agali that we talked about. But that seems now out of the question. And again, we don't really know whether Wagner is going to stick around in its current form. But even assuming it does, it doesn't look likely that's going to yield better results for the government than its partnership with the French and Western partners did, right? Yes and no. Actually, I mean, it's very unclear what the situation is currently in central Mali. 
I mean, the, the, the Malian strategy allowed Bamako to avoid any collapse. And uh, some observers were anticipating such a collapse after the withdrawal of Barkhane. So in a way, at the very least, this new strategic alliance with uh, Wagner and the focus on military operation have allowed Bamako to, uh, to maintain its presence in the center. But again, this comes with a price. And the price is the heavy cost, you know, paid by the civilians as you have, you know, increasingly uh, abuses from all sides, including also the, the Malian defense forces against uh, a civilian. And it's where also the end of MINUSMA will have, will have consequences. Um, the UN force had, had limited success in protecting civilians, but at least it, it remained a, a form of protection, uh, especially with you know, its capacity to investigate uh, abuses com- committed by all, all, all belligerents. And this is going to disappear with, uh, with the absence of, of MINUSMA. And, and what is uh, a likely scenario is that the Mayan forces, alongside their, 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 their new um, strategic partners, they will double down, not only on military operation, but on brutal military operation. That's extremely worrying for Mali. And Jonathan, I guess, and, and, and again, we don't really know, but let's say Wagner does disband. I mean, the thousand, one and a half thousand Wagner forces pull out. UN peacekeepers pull out, French are gone. Can the Malian army fight jihadists? Can it keep jihadists out of out of Bamako uh, by itself? Again, you know, two years ago when the French left, there was a lot of speculation about the collapse of, of Bamako. And here we are today, two years later, Bamako is still in position. Yes, they have probably not, not the capacity they'd like to retake, you know, uh, completely uh, the entirety of the territory. But uh, the kind of enemy that they have, you know, is, is not uh, able either to maintain the control over large space. In a way, some, you know, you could say that it's a fight between two weaknesses. Um, and this creates a lot of uncertainty uh, about the, the near future of the country. And so maybe just one last one, Richard, as we have you on. I mean, this has been an episode sort of mostly about Wagner, but... On peacekeeping more broadly, on UN peacekeeping more broadly, is Bamako's demand that peacekeepers pull out? I mean, is that another nail in the coffin for this sort of big UN peacekeeping operations? There's certainly been a lot of speculation over the last week about what Mali's decision means for the other big UN peacekeeping operations in Africa, uh, because... You know, MINUSMA is by no means the only Blue Helmet operation to have pretty tense relations with its host government. Uh, Eyes were on Central African Republic last week because there was a Security Council uh, debate about the country and the foreign minister from CAR was here. It was interesting that actually she made a point of sounding quite positive about MINUSCA the UN peacekeeping operation in CAR. I think there was quite a clear signal that CAR is not going to uh, follow Mali's lead and demand that uh, the mission on its soil get out. And uh, that reflects the fact that the Central African Republic is still more dependent on the UN for for basic security, perhaps, than, than Mali is. Eyes are also on the Democratic Republic of Congo, where relations have really soured very badly between the government and also the population and MINUSCO, the long-running UN operation. Uh, 
I don't actually think that what's happening in Mali will fundamentally change uh, the direction of travel in Congo, but the direction of travel in Congo is already towards MONUSCO drawing down and probably wrapping up in 2024-25. Nonetheless, this is a significant blow, uh, I think, to UN peacekeeping at a time when all the troubles in Congo and South Sudan and and other cases uh, had already been raising a lot of doubts about the value of, of bigger Blue Helmet operations in the minds of Security Council diplomats. And we know that even Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General, is sceptical about what these large-scale and comparatively expensive missions really deliver. Uh, For a while, there has been a view in New York that as the peacekeepers leave, leave Mali, leave Congo, perhaps leave South Sudan, a sort of an era of peacekeeping is coming to a close. I would say that you should never bet on the death of UN peace operations. They're over until another powerful member of the Security Council decides that actually one would be quite useful somewhere. Exactly. And although we're sort of seeing the shrinking of the UN footprint in Africa, Security Council members are still struggling with the question of what to do about Haiti, where you have a, a deepening security crisis and... There is no multinational force on the horizon that wants to deploy to Port-au-Prince and bring stability. So it's quite possible that at some time in the next six to 12 months, the council will hold its nose and send blue helmets back into Haiti. So, you know, the history of peacekeeping is not linear, but I think it is true to say that what we're seeing in Mali is part of the end of a certain chapter of operations in Africa. jean Richard, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group on Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Wagner, on Russia, on Ukraine, on the Sahel, on the UN. All that's up on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Anolia, Jonave and Richard are also all on Twitter. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schau. And thanks, of course, as ever, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch. Podcasts at crisisgroup.org. Write to me directly, atwood at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions or concerns. If you like the show, please do leave us a nice rating or review we're getting towards the end of the season now but certainly we'll have in the weeks ahead uh, another episode on the latest from sudan and if necessary of course we'll come back to the wagner fallout in russia and ukraine so i very much hope you'll join us again next time